The sermon passage can be found in the second letter of John, which can be found on page 1025 in the Bible in front of you. The second letter of John. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourself so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Well, this morning we come to consider the short New Testament letter uh, that we call Second John. So back in December, you may remember, we finished a longer study of the longer letter of First John, and so it seemed wise while we still have John's context and his concerns in our memory to, to move on and think about Second John and then Third John as well in our time together. So uh, the plan is, uh, is to consider Second John today and then Third John the next time uh, that I'm preaching. And then after that, uh, the hope is to begin a longer study of the Old Testament book of Numbers uh, while, while Seth and Mike continue working on the, the Gospel of Mark uh, when I'm away. So that's the plan for today. Um, as we look at 2 John, uh, let's start by getting a little sense of the, the background there in, in verse 1 that Natalia just read for us. Uh, we, we read the address of the letter. It says here that uh, it is the, the writing of the elder to the elect lady and her children. So the author refers to himself here as the elder. We don't get a name like in many of Paul's letters. So if you've read Paul's letters in the New Testament, he usually comes out of the gate, says Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he goes into it. But here uh, the author just calls himself the elder. 
So that could indicate his role in the church, that he, he was an elder, he was a, a pastor in the church, that he exercised that function, or it could simply mean that, that he was an older, respected man. Uh, it's clear in any case that he has a close and intimate relationship uh, with his audience, that he expects them to know that he cares about them and that he knows them. Uh, the elder never comes out and says his name directly, but uh, we have we have pretty good and, and reliable reasons for thinking that this is the Apostle John, one of Jesus's uh, original disciples, the author of the, John's gospel. So the, the, the syntax and the vocabulary that, that we see here in 2 John are very similar to what we see in 1 John. It's hard to imagine they were written by, by different authors. Uh, it seems that it was accepted into the the, the canon as scripture by the New Testament or by the, the uh, early church very early on. So it does seem very logical that this was written by someone that they recognized as an authority. So it, it seems very clear this was written by John. A lot of the language here even sort of reflects the language of John's gospel. And he's writing here, he says, to the elect lady and her children. So it could be that John's writing like literally to an individual woman, a lady, and the kids that live in her house. Uh, it's probably better to understand that he is, is writing to a, a particular local church, that that's the elect lady, and then the members of her church would be then her children. So in other parts of the Bible, we see the church referred to in the feminine uh, called she or a bride. So this imagery that John uses here isn't, isn't too strange. Right? It seems that he's speaking to the elect lady and her children, to, to the church and it's, particularly its members. Now, if you remember, the church to which John has been writing has been racked with turmoil and conflict. If you remember back from 1 John, there was a, a church split that we read about in 1 John chapter 2, where some false teachers and their followers had gone out from the congregation. And so it's not insignificant here that he, he refers to this church as the elect lady, the, the chosen lady, the called out by God lady. He's reminding them, I think, at the very outset that though, though many despise them, uh, many reject them, right, in the world outside and even some of the people within their own church who had gone out from them, he, he's reminding this church that they belong to God, that he loves them, that he has chosen them, that he delights in them. And it's not only God who loves this church. Look again in verses 1 to 2, we read this. The elder... To the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. So John tells them here that, that he loves them. He says he loves them in truth. Uh, the I there in that sentence, it's in the, in, the, in the original Greek in which John is writing. It's in the place of emphasis in, this, in the sentence. As if John's saying, look, whatever the world might think of you, whatever those false teachers might say about you, I love you. You see his care, his warm-heartedness for this congregation there in his conclusion in verse 12. He says there, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete he loves this church. His joy is not complete until he can sit down face to face and talk with them. There in the middle of verse 1, he makes it clear that he doesn't just love them in some sort of vague, abstract way. He tells them that he loves them in truth. That is to say, his love is genuine and sincere. 
and even more, this church, this elect lady, he says, is loved by all who know the truth. That is to say, all who have come to believe the truth about Jesus. There in verse 13, at the very end of our little letter, he calls these other believers the children of your elect sister. Right, the members of the, the sister church where John was currently stationed, he passes on their love, their greetings. It's almost as if John is sort of tenderly coming along this beleaguered and battered church, and he's putting his, his finger under their chin and, and elevating their gaze and reminding her that she's not alone. You've been chosen by God. You're loved by me. You're greeted by all the other Christians out there. Now, how can John say that this church is loved by all these other people who also love the truth? Surely he didn't actually know every Christian out there. He couldn't confirm that. Well, he says there in verse 2, he says that this love that other Christians have for this church, it's because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Right, that is to say, John loves them, and all the other believers love this church because they have something, or perhaps we should say someone, in common. They have something that John says abides in us. They have something living in them, something that remains in them, something that John says, in fact, will be with them forever. And what is that? Well, he says there, the truth. This church is loved by John and by all other Christians because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Now certainly John means to say there that we are all united by a common understanding, a common belief in a body of established doctrine. Right? If you remember back to 1 John, the heretical leaders who had recently gone out from the church had been spreading all sorts of false teaching, most significantly denying that Jesus had come in the flesh. We'll think about that a little bit later. And so John is reminding this church and us that we're held together by the truth, by a, a mutual faith, by belief in the truth that Jesus has come in, in the flesh. But I do think there's more to it than just that. That's very significant, but I think in John's understanding, the truth isn't just whatever concepts happen to correspond to reality, but in John's thinking, the truth is a person. So in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus tells us that he doesn't just teach us the truth, but he says he actually is the truth. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And in 1 John chapter 5, the apostle uh, tells us this. He says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, listen, because the Spirit is the truth. And when you step back, John seems to be saying that the love that he has for this church and that all other believers have for this church is because the Lord Jesus himself abides in them, is present with them by his Holy Spirit forever. Why do they love you? Because of the truth. He abides in us. And will be with us forever. And brothers and sisters, how great is that? Christian love, Christian unity is more than a sort of sentimental sense of kinship. Right? A sort of affinity for someone who happens to share the same view of things that you have. No. 
Christian love, Christian unity is nothing less than those who have been elected by God the Father and loved by the Lord Jesus himself and indwelt by his spirit, living out the reality of their salvation together. And so having poured all this love out on this church, John continues to encourage them with a sort of mashup of ideas there in verse 3. He says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Right? Grace, mercy, peace. John says all of these things will be with us. They are, they are things that we receive as part of our salvation. Right? These are things that come as a result of God's love and compassion. Right? Not our effort. Right? Grace and mercy. Uh, peace points us to a reality that, that stands outside of ourselves, that we live in a world of chaos and strife, but we have peace. We're right with God. We're right with one another. And John says these ideas, grace, mercy, peace, they're not, they're not wishes. They're not hopes, but they are a certainty. They will be with us, John says, because they come to us in love and truth. They come to us as a gift. Brothers and sisters, this is right at the heart of Christianity. Grace, mercy, peace. Right? Other, other religions offer you peace. But it's a peace that you achieve through disciplined effort. It's a, it's a peace that you earn. It's a peace that you have to work for. Right? There can be no certainty, no confidence in that. I don't know about you, but I'm up one day and down the next some days I'm disciplined and I'm sharp, and if I squint, I could think I'm doing it, right? I, maybe, maybe today I'm good enough, but other days I'm low. I lack motivation. I lack discipline. And so the reality is that we can only receive things like grace and mercy and peace if they come to us as a gift of love, right? They have to come to us not through our goodness, not through our cleverness, but through God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, as John says there at the end of verse 3. So John greets this church. He encourages them uh, with the love that, that he and all believers have for them. He, he reminds them of all that they've received, grace, mercy, and peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he moves on in verses really 4 to 11 to get to the heart of what it is that he wants to say. Having greeted them in this way, he has some instructions for them. He has things that he needs to, to cover with them. And so with the rest of our time, let's look at, at two things in particular. These will be my two points. First, let's look at truth and love. So we'll see that in verses four, and, four to six, truth and love. And then in verses seven to 10, we'll see truth and error. So truth and love, verses four to six, truth and error, verses seven to 10. So first, truth and love. Look there in verses four to six. Let me read those for you again. John says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. So John seems to be concerned that the church walk in some kind of commandment, Right, that idea of walking comprises belief and obedience and conformity. Right, to walk in a certain way is to make that your life's direction. 
its trajectory, your orientation. It is the thing that characterizes you. And so here there's a commandment of God in which John wants this church to walk. He wants to make this command of God their life's direction, their life's trajectory and, and orientation. He wants this, this command of God, to be the thing that characterizes their lives. Right? You see that there in verse 4. He talks about what he wants for them as walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. He says he, he delights to see some of their children walking in the truth. Right? Walking in the truth for John means obeying God's commands. And here for John, it's one specific command that he has in mind. There in the middle of verse 5, again at the, verse, at the end of verse 6, he reminds the dear lady, this isn't a new command that he's bringing. He's not coming to bring them any new information. He says it's one you've heard from the beginning. So, so from day one of the gospel being proclaimed to you, you heard this command. And what is the command that, that he's so desperate for this church to walk in? What's the command that he wants to characterize their lives, that, to be their life's direction and orientation and trajectory? Well, he says there in verse 5 at the end, the command is that we love one another. This is the commandment we have from the beginning, that we love one another. Remember the night before he died, Jesus told his disciples in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. In the, the letter of 1 John, the apostle wrote something very similar to what we see in our passage this morning in 2 John. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, it says, For this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, the Bible talks about a lot of ways <clears throat> that Christians are called on to love. If you're a Christian, you're told to love in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different relationships. All of those loves are rooted in the character of God. So we're told to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and strength and mind. And that's right, because God alone is glorious and perfect and worthy of nothing less than everything we have. We're told to love our neighbors as ourselves. And again, that's rooted in who God is and what he's done. We love our neighbors as ourselves because we see God's image stamped on them, on every human being. And so every human being is worthy of our care and compassion. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul tells husbands to love their wives according to the pattern of Christ's love for his church, sacrificing everything for her well-being. We're even told to love our enemies because it's the glory of our Father in heaven that he is able to love the unlovely. He doesn't need an object to be worthy of his love in order to love but Jesus reminds us that he shows undeserved kindness to those who hate him. And so we, as his children, are called on to love in the same way. Right? All of those different kinds of love, love for God, love for neighbor, love for spouse, love for enemy, it's all connected to God and his character, his love. And so is the love that, that this elect lady and we are being called to show here in 2 John. John says that we must love one another. That's the command in which he wants us to walk. 
And he says it's something that's so deeply connected, so deeply rooted in the gospel message that it's something that they've heard from the beginning. This is one of the first things they needed to know when they came to Christ. This was one of the first commands they were called on to live out after being brought into God's people. Love one another. You can see, can't you, how this command has its root right in the gospel message? <clears throat> Think about it. The gospel, the good news, the message of Christianity is that though we've all rebelled against our creator, though we've all sinned against him and made him our enemy, in his great love, God sent his son to bring us back to him. Jesus, God's son in human flesh, lived a life of perfect obedience, the life that you and I should have lived. But instead of enjoying God's favor and blessing, he experienced on the cross what you and I deserve. He gave up his life there on the cross, offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins, as a substitute in our place. He took our sin on himself and bore our judgment there at the cross. And he rose from the dead in victory over the sin and death that we deserve. <coughs> and now he extends God's love and grace and forgiveness and eternal life to anyone who will turn from their sin and trust in him. Brothers and sisters, that's the message we believe. That's the message we proclaim. And importantly for our purposes this morning, that message creates a people. That message of God's undeserved love and favor creates a community. It, it brings together all of the people whose lives have been transformed by that truth and brings them into a relationship of love with one another. Right? That's what we see here in 2 John. John loves the elect lady in truth, as do all others who know the truth. Right? Those who have experienced the grace and love of God in Christ have a special love for other believers. And so here John wants to make sure that this church is particularly characterized by love for one another. That's the command. It's hardly a new one. It's one that we've thought about plenty of times. We thought about it plenty of times when we were going through 1 John. But it bears constant repeating because it's so closely connected to the life and the vitality of the church. And let's face it, this is probably the devil's best shot to kill our church, right? We're, we're probably not the best candidates for embracing some sort of like new heretical doctrine, right? We're kind of stuck in the 17th century. Our theological commitments are pretty, pretty solidly rooted. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it wouldn't be where I would start trying to destroy our church, right? We're not likely to start embracing and, and promoting and approving of things that God calls sinful in his word, right? I'm not saying we're invulnerable on those fronts, but again, it's much more likely that we would slowly and perhaps imperceptibly over time simply stop loving one another. Because to be honest, if, if we're being really frank, if you, if you wanted to withhold love, if you wanted to disapprove and dislike and disdain your brothers and sisters in the church, you've got plenty of material to work with. If you look closely at my life, you could easily create a dossier on me cataloging all the ways I am unworthy of being loved. And in fact, the evil one has just such a file on me and on you. Right, the word Satan in Hebrew, it means 
accuser. In Revelation 12, the devil is called the accuser of the brethren. Right? In the courtroom of the universe, the evil one is something of a prosecutor. And he's got a file on me and a file on you that's plenty thick. And so there's plenty of reason not to love your brothers and sisters. Just ask the devil. But the gospel message is that unlovable people like us, selfish, lazy, proud, perverted, angry, cowardly, foolish, bitter, judgmental, regret-filled, self-deceived, greedy people like you and me are the objects of the most unimaginably great and undeserved love and favor and kindness. Right? Jesus didn't suffer and die for us because we were so good that we deserve it. No, he suffered and died for us because we are so bad that we could not be brought to God any other way. And so as a church, we have a daily decision as we relate to one another. Whose side are we on? God sees you in your sin and says, I love you and I want you to be mine. I will give my son for you and my spirit to you. I will wash you and transform you and ultimately bring you to be with me forever. Satan says, look at this guy. Read the file. He isn't worthy. So John is desperate for the elect lady to walk in the truth, to live life in step with the truth of the gospel by loving one another in the church, by embracing and enjoying and accepting one another, because that's exactly what God has done for us in Christ. In this sense, I think what you all did last week for Mike and Heidi was maybe one of the most holy things we could do as a church. Like if you weren't here last week, you really missed out. We had a wonderful morning thanking God for the Joneses' 10 years of ministry with us. We got to pray for them, celebrate them, give them gifts, say nice things about them. And there's a way of looking at something like that as a kind of distraction. As if we, we took time away from the things we're supposed to be doing as a church in order to sort of take a break and do this. But, but I'd argue that there are actually few things that we could do that more clearly live out the gospel message than to rejoice in and celebrate a brother and sister in Christ. Because you know what? I don't think this is going to shock anyone. But Mike and Heidi are actually sinners. Right? If we had access to every thought, deed, and word in their entire lives, we could probably put together an entire service devoted to counter-programming, right? A day devoted to condemning them for how unlikable and unworthy of love they are. Right? And I know that not because I have sort of secret information about the Joneses, but because I know my own heart. I know my own life. I know it's true of me. But for a community shaped by the gospel, for a church family that's looking through gospel eyeglasses, that, that file, that's not where the action is. That's not really interesting to us at all, except to see and to rejoice in just how great God's love is and, and how much there's been growth and change over, in their lives over the past 10 years. No, when we see Mike and Heidi and every other member of this church, we see them as our Heavenly Father sees them, as objects of love and delight. Brothers and sisters, when we live like that as a church family, not just on special weekends set aside to mark anniversaries, but in the everyday details of our lives, when we bring a meal to someone in need, when we are generous with our time and money, when we choose to think about one another and set our hearts towards one another with the, the gospel in mind, rather than viewing one another 
the way the devil views us. When we do those things, we are, in the word of, words of 2 John, we are walking in the truth. We are walking according to his command. We are making the command of God to love one another our life's trajectory and orientation. You know, when we think of one another, there are two competing realities, two truths. One is the truth of our failure and our unloveliness. This is the truth that the devil can get behind. But the other truth is gospel truth, that we are loved and cleansed and transformed by God's unmerited kindness. And here's what you have to see. That second truth has eradicated the first truth. That second truth, the gospel truth, has taken that first truth and nailed it to the cross. And we, we bear it no more. It's been crucified with Christ. It has been rendered inadmissible in court. Right, the devil can bring his file in, but, but it's all been set aside. He can't even open it. So the call to walk in the truth is the call to walk in that greater truth, that more important truth, to let the truth of God's love drive out and triumph over the truth of others' unworthiness and their sin. It's to make the gospel message the direction and the trajectory and the orientation of your life and particularly your interactions in this church family. Truth and love. That brings us to our second point for this morning, truth and error. You see that there in verses 7 to 11. It says, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what, you've worked, what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Here John launches out on what seems to be a new topic, though I want to argue in a minute that it's actually not. I won't take a ton of time on these ideas. We dealt with them more extensively back in 1 John. But there in verse 7, John reminds them that many deceivers have gone out into the world denying that Jesus has come in the flesh. It seems like John's talking about the, the faithless teachers who had gone out from them and into the world. They had some false doctrine. As we saw when we thought about 1 John chapter 4, it seems that these false teachers claimed that the spirit of the Christ came upon Jesus at his baptism and then left him before he went to the cross. Essentially, these false teachers who had gone out from the church into the world denied the incarnation of the Son of God. They, they couldn't fathom that God's Son would stoop so low as to become an infant, to become one of us, to even be crucified. And so for John, this is a, a diabolical denial of the truth. John says that's a doctrine that cannot save you. A failure to confess the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh is spiritually ruinous. Right? The message that had been proclaimed to the church from the beginning was that the Son of God became a man and stayed a man throughout his earthly life and remains fully human even now in heaven. And that's important because if he didn't and if he's not, then we can't be saved 
Right? If the Son of God didn't come in the flesh as a human infant, if he didn't come in a way that we could see with our eyes and touch with our hands, as John reminds us back in 1 John 1, then there's no way he could stand in our place as our representative. His obedience would have nothing to do with us because it could never be credited to us because he wasn't actually one of us. If the Son of God didn't go to the cross in the flesh, he could never pay the price for the sins of human beings like you and me. But he could never offer his life as an atoning sacrifice. If he didn't rise from the dead and ascend into heaven in the flesh, he couldn't represent us. He couldn't be our advocate, as John says in 1 John chapter 2. Right? Any teaching that denies the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh can't save. And so there at the end of verse 7, anyone who teaches that false doctrine, John says, is a deceiver and an antichrist. There are places in the New Testament that talk about a great deceiver who will arise at the very end of history in, a, in the period of time that immediately precedes the return of Christ. Jesus warns us about false prophets and false Christs who will deceive with their great signs and wonders. In 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul writes about a lawless one who will deceive many before he's ultimately vanquished by the Lord Jesus at his coming. In Revelation 12 to 13, we read about a beast who deceives the earth and makes war against the followers of Jesus, right? So this picture emerges in the New Testament that there will be a great deceiver who will arise at the end of history, right? At the time right before Jesus returns, and he is called Antichrist. But there's also a sense in which there's a, a large number of sort of smaller, maybe we'd say small a, lesser Antichrists along the way. There will be many little a antichrists, deceivers who, who may not have power and influence like the final antichrist, but whose work is consistent with his goals and methods. And so here John understands that that's what's been happening in the church. These false teachers, these deceivers, these sort of little a antichrists have gone out from you into the world. And it's not just that these false teachers are wrong. No, it's that they're dangerous. Right? They don't just shipwreck their own souls, but they're taking other people down with them. These false teachers aren't content to believe their own lies. They want to convince other people of a gospel that cannot save them. Right? They want to teach other people to love a Jesus who doesn't exist and who wouldn't be able to save them if he did. Right? In 1 John chapter 2, verse 26, he tells the church that these people are trying to deceive you. And it's because of this danger that John says here what he says in 2 John. You see in verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Right, to embrace this false doctrine, to refuse to stay, to abide in the teaching of Christ, it means that you don't have God himself. You can only know him through the Lord Jesus, through his incarnate son. To deny him is to fail to know God. No matter how sophisticated your arguments, no matter how many Bible verses are being quoted, John says here in 2 John 9, it is only by abiding. It's only by remaining in and continuing on in the apostolic teaching about Jesus that we come to have the Father and the Son. John says there, whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Well, what about the Holy Spirit? It seems odd that John would mention two-thirds of the Trinity and leave the Spirit off, but, but I, I think the Apostle 
uh, would understand that the Spirit is absolutely at work in this. Right? If you remember back in 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, the apostle says, we can only confess the truth about Christ. The only way you can confess that Jesus has come in the flesh truly is by the power of the Holy Spirit abiding in you. And so here in 2 John 9, it seems that John's saying, when we abide in the truth of the Spirit's presence and power in us, we are, we are in relationship with the Father and the Son. But that's the great incentive to us here in verse 9. The warning, if you fail to abide in the teaching, you don't have the Father and Son. But, but if you do, you will have them. Well, because all that's true, Because of the great spiritual danger posed by these false teachers, John gives two instructions to the elect lady. There in verses 10 to 11, he tells them, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. John wants to make sure that his words about love are not misunderstood. When he says that we need to love one another, he's not talking about showing hospitality and greeting and acceptance to these wolves in sheep's clothing. No, he's calling on the church to be discerning. When someone is trying to destroy your soul and the soul of your brothers and sisters, when someone comes to you with the intent of leading you astray, you don't give them a comfortable bed and a cup of tea. You drive them away. The love that you need to show to them is is love that calls them to turn from their wickedness, right? They need to be told to repent and to flee to Christ for mercy, right? The love that your brothers and sisters need for you or from you is for you to shout these false teachers down in your loudest voice. I think the application for us as a church is clear. We need to be discerning in our love. There are a lot of false teachers out there, right? Now, we're not talking about sincere, godly people who have reached different conclusions from us on secondary and tertiary matters. Things like baptism, the end times, the relationship between God's sovereignty and human will. We can joyfully embrace, show hospitality to, greet faithful Presbyterians and Bible churches and charismatic churches and all kinds of churches that love the Lord Jesus Christ and love his gospel in sincerity. What we need to be discerning about are those who haven't just reached different conclusions about secondary matters, but those who have taken the gospel, the primary thing, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, come in the flesh to die for us and and have twisted it to make it a a soul-damning, condemning lie. We have to make sure we're not linking arms with those who would teach that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, those who wouldn't teach that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. We need to make sure we're not linking arms with those who would say you can embrace your sin as an identity and still consider yourself a child of the Holy One, that we can somehow merit our salvation or our right standing with God. There are churches out there that teach such things, and we, brothers and sisters, cannot affirm them. We cannot link arms with them. John says anyone who, who teaches these things should find no welcome, no reception, no hospitality here, unless, of course, they want to repent and follow Jesus. This is no small thing. There in verse 8, John reminds us the stakes are high. He says, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we've worked for, but may win a full reward. See, brothers and sisters, God has a great reward for us. I think that's what John's talking about there in verse 9. This reward that you've been working for, this prize 
that's at the end of the race you're running. It's God himself. It's, it's knowing God the Father, having God the Son, being indwelt by God the Spirit. John says, abide in the teaching, continue on in the truth. Don't be deceived by these false teachers. Don't let their lies gain purchase in your soul. Watch yourself, pay careful attention, he says, because the reward to which you're headed is nothing less than God himself. Eternal life in his presence, in his glory, in his joy, in his beauty, in his love. When you get to that reward, John seems to be saying the strains, the labors, the sufferings of this life will all seem more than worth it. He says that if you greet someone, if you embrace a teacher who's teaching false doctrine, right, you're taking part in their wicked works. In some ways, you are guilty of, of what they're doing. But if you abide in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you watch yourself, as he says there in verse 8, Brothers and sisters, there is a great reward. So as we finish, as we transition to the Lord's table, there's just one more thing I want to think about briefly. And that is, what is the relationship between these two points in our sermon? Right, we thought about truth and love. We've seen truth and error. But is there a connection? Is there, is there a connection between John's command to love one another and his command that we watch ourselves carefully not to embrace false teaching? Or is John just kind of preaching two different sermons? Well, I think there is a connection. And I think there actually has to be a connection because of that little word at the beginning of verse 7. You see that? He says, for. Love one another, verses 4 to 6. For. Since. Because. Love one another for this reason, because many deceivers have gone out into the world. Right? That's what we see in verses 7 to 11. Why would John tell them that it's important for them to love one another in light of the, the danger and temptation of false teachers? Love one another, for there are all kinds of false teachers out there in the world. Well, here's what I think. I think that a, a church like ours, a church like the elect lady, right? All churches that love the Lord Jesus in a world that lies under the power of the evil one, as we see in 1 John 5, 19, all churches will be beset by threats from the outside. The world out there is, is always calling. It is always singing its siren song. It is always preaching other salvations to us. It's always offering other rewards. It's always giving us other messiahs. Right? If only we'll trade in. If only we'll deny. If only we'll even just water down the one we have. And one of the great antidotes, one of the great anti-venoms that the Lord has supplied to his people, one of our great defenses against those lies is the love that we have for one another. Experiencing the love of the Christian community helps create in us an immunity to the lies of the evil one. Think about it this way. Imagine that all the false teaching, all the false beliefs out there are like a disease. And the church is like a physician with the cure. A, a physician with the antidote to the poison. 
right? In the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have medicine that can cure the soul. Now, does the love and the kindness of a physician impact the efficacy of the medicine that they prescribe? Of course not, right? Penicillin works whether my doctor loves me or couldn't care less about me. But does the love and kindness of a physician impact how likely I am to, to listen to their instructions and follow them carefully? Does the love and kindness of a physician impact how likely I am to get on the internet and figure out what a bunch of other people say? Right, what the people on Reddit say about what's going on with me? Well, it absolutely does matter. Right, if the doctor spends no time listening to me, doesn't seem to care about me at all, just shoves me a prescription and an invoice and shovels me out of his office, I'm going to have doubts about whether or not I should listen to him, about whether he really knows what he's talking about, about whether this medicine really is going to be good for me. But if I have a doctor that cares, that, that takes time, that would do anything to help me get better, then of course I'm going to listen to them. Of course I'm going to follow their instructions. And so do you see one of the ways that we love one another, or protect one another, right? when, we, when we love one another in the church, we are helping to protect one another from the attractiveness of the lies outside our doors. Right? We, are, we are, in a sense, uh, providing some sense of proof to the message that we're proclaiming. Right? We, are, we are giving credence to the, the message that we, that we preach. When we love one another in the church, we're helping to protect each other from the lies and the deceit that's out there. Let me give you an example, and then we can be finished. So I have five kids. Two have gone off to college. And with each of those two kids, before they went off to school, the week before, uh, I took them out to lunch. And, and I read them a letter that I had written to them. Basically, I started to, like, when I, when I realized they were going off to college, I started to remember all these things that I, I don't know if I had told them. Like, do they... Like, do they know how to properly grill a hamburger, right? I don't know. Is it okay to use a meat thermometer when you're grilling steak? There's all these, like, controversial issues, and I'm like, maybe they haven't heard, right? And then all sorts of more important things. And so I wrote them this long letter that this kind of ranges almost sort of uh, like a crazy person between, like, really important things and also, like, really weird sort of unimportant things. But, but maybe the most important thing that I, I said to each one of them is, look, you're going to be exposed to so many other voices when you go to college. As you go through your life, you are going to be exposed to so many other ways of thinking about the world. You're going to meet so many people who don't believe what we believe and who don't love what we've taught you to love. And some of those voices are going to seem really compelling. They're going to seem sophisticated and wise and important. And you might even feel a little bit foolish that that you don't see things the way that they see them. But here's what I want you to remember. I want you to remember the people who have loved you. I want you to remember the people from whom you heard the gospel. I want you to think of the Wachtels and the Rose and the Pawkins and your grandparents and the Joneses and the Clocks and so on and so on. And I named dozens of you. I want you to think of them. I want you to think of how much they've loved you over the course of your life, how they've prayed for you, how they've shown kindness to you, how they've laughed with you, how they've cried with you, how they've given generously to you. I want you to think of them. And then remember these new voices, these other teachers, the one thing you know for sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is that they don't love you. They don't care one whit about your soul. 
And so you don't have to listen to them. Do you see, if we walk according to his command, if we love one another like this, if we love the young people in our church so selflessly, so thoroughly, the deceivers out there won't have anywhere to get us. And so, brothers and sisters, one of the great gifts the Lord's given to us towards this end is the Lord's Supper. Because here each week we affirm twin gospel truths, that God has loved us incredibly in Christ. That the, the, in the bread and the cup, his broken body, his shed blood, we've received incredible love. And then also we love one another in him. And so let's pray. And let's walk together in the truth by coming to the Lord's table in love. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, you are so good to us, so kind to us. You have loved us in your Son when we were unlovely. And so we pray that by your Spirit, you would help us to walk in your command. Father, how gracious, all the things you could command, all the things that you could want to be the headline on our church. And you want us to love. You want us to, to care for one another. You want us, you want the young people in our church to grow up in a community of love. And so, Father, we pray that you would make that increasingly true in our midst. Would we never side with the devil against our brother or sister? Would you give us your great love for one another? We pray that you would do that, and in so doing, that you would protect us from the many deceivers uh, outside these doors. We pray all these things in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.